Hi, my name is Pippa and you are listening to The Drop. The Drop is an investigative, mindful and creative dive into the future. In each episode, we'll ask a question or investigate an issue around equality, sustainability or a better future. So this week, the question we asked was whose responsibility is it to make change? Is it up to brands and businesses? Is it on consumers or policymakers? And we also explored what are the different approaches to change? The guests that we interviewed were Sarah Ditty from Fashion Revolution, Luke Smitham from Impact and Tom Kay from Finisterre. I caught up with the girls, Amy, Bronwyn and Claire, to find out what they thought of this topic and the insights gained from my interviews. So, this episode explores whose responsibility is it to make change? Is it consumers, brands and businesses or policymakers? And we also explored different approaches to change. Yeah, I think it's a really necessary topic, especially as one of our earlier ones in The Drop. Um, because everyone passes the buck and you know brands say that consumers need to demand change but if someone's entering in these conversations for the first time like we once did it's so difficult to understand what the situation actually is yeah completely and I think it felt very personal to me because as when you're design when learning how to design and make things you sort of realize there are all these issues and supply chains and how we do things now and you can kind of choose to ignore that or not and so I felt like I kind of want to take it on and so with this question I think I was thinking in the back of my head okay, where can I focus my energy? Where can I make the most change? And, you know, just basically, how can I save the world? (laughs) Here at The Drop, we focus on sustainability. And, you know, often where you have these conversations, we're kind of speculating towards the future. But a reason why this is a good one for one of our first conversations is that these are issues that we're having to deal with in the here and now. So first off, we chat with Sarah Diddy from Fashion Revolution, which emerged from the Rana Plaza factory collapse, which was only five years ago, which is super recent. Yeah, and so Claire, what you're saying about this being a here and now issue as opposed to too far in the future is great because one of the things that we wrote when we were doing our drop manifesto was about this idea that you know sustainability isn't just about taking the world we live in and making it 100% environmentally sustainable. It's about looking at the world we live in and going, how can we actually make it a world worth sustaining and looking at sort of the equality piece as well. And because this episode is so related to um, working conditions and people, it's a very human episode and it's a very human topic for the here and now. So for anyone who doesn't know, Rana Plaza was a factory complex in Bangladesh, making clothes for tons of international brands. Despite the fact that many of the people working there were raising their concerns over deep cracks in the buildings, managers still ordered them to enter the building. And on the 24th of April, 2013, before 9am, the building started to collapse. Yeah, and in researching for my episode, I read one horrible statistic that was, it only took 90 seconds for the whole building to collapse, which is insane. And in that 90 seconds, 1,134 people were killed and so many more were injured. It was just such a horrific and kind of watershed moment as many brands were not even sure if they produced there. And when I was thinking about, you know, what catalyzes change, it's so sad that it took such a huge tragedy and a horrific incident to get the fashion industry to, you know, take more responsibility and not keep passing the blame. Going back to talking about passing the blame, I think in when we interview Tom Kay from Finisterre, he and Pippa are speaking about microplastics, and they talk about this issue of, is the solution to microplastics in oceans, is it washing machine filters, or is it designing microplastics out of our clothing? And what that idea gets across is basically that, you know, it's easy for brands to say, oh, it's a washing machine issue. They pass the blame to the consumers who say, you know, it's unsustainable because you wash your clothes too much, or whichever, and then they no longer have to take accountability for their unsustainable supply chain. And then for consumers, they often go back and say, well, why are these brands even creating these kind of textiles that are shedding microplastics? It just highlights the complexity of these issues and there's never one simple single solution. Yeah, thinking about that idea of this one being this one single simple solution, I think that's what was so interesting about talking to Luke from Impact. So Luke looks at supply chains, he works with brands. That's his job to try and um, reduce like labour issues and like exploitation issues. And one thing I learned from him is there's all these grey areas and that like, the cause and effect you might think that by saying one thing you're implementing one change but actually it has a totally different consequence so basically it's not as simple as this one fix-all solution yeah completely thing i realized when um researching this and chatting to all of our guests this week was that i'd frame the question as all these people as separate entities so 
brands, consumers, policymakers, but actually all these people are people that will, you know, everyone's a consumer, people that work in policymaking, people that work in brands. And so really, um, it seems that the change might be less complicated than we think. And it could just be about people changing their attitudes and their mindsets and that then like sort of being embedded in everything they do. Get ready, I'm about to say fashion about eight times. First up, we spoke to Sarah Ditty. Sarah is head of policy at Fashion Revolution. Fashion Revolution is a global movement that celebrates fashion as a positive influence whilst also scrutinising industry practices. As an organisation that aims to raise public awareness of fashion's most pressing issues, we spoke to Sarah to understand the consumer side of the argument and to talk about approaches to change. But before diving into that, Sarah explained to me how Rana Plaza was essentially the catalyst for fashion revolution. Right after Rana Plaza happened um, back in April of 2013, a bunch of people had been working in some way in the fashion industry, uh, got together, people had known each other for a while and just felt enough is enough, Mm -hmm. something's got to change. It's just absurd that a tragedy of that magnitude happened despite the fact that we've all been kind of working you know in a on sustainability issues you know on human rights issues in the in the fashion supply chain for you know some people over 20 years Mm -hmm. and uh and yeah so we got together and thought all right how are we gonna keep this in as a global conversation you know so that's more than a news cycle and really use this terrible incident to create a bigger, faster, you know, more systemic change. And Fashion Revolution sees consumer awareness and engagement as a huge part of this systemic change. When we first started Fashion Revolution from the beginning, we really felt like the consumer element was missing. The supply chain issues are super complicated and all the causes that kind of led to Rana Plaza happening were also quite complex. Mm -hmm. And we really wanted, we really felt that the kind of consumer awareness was just far too low for things to be able to change in a big, big way. I guess on the social side of things, on the environmental side of things, you know, we, we live in a very consumptive culture and we f- really felt like that mentality needed to be challenged more broadly and in a more mainstream way. They saw consumer awareness was low and thought, if consumers don't know what's happening and how brands operate, how can they demand better? Working in the industry, we'd heard time and time again from big brands and retailers that, you know, oh, well, yeah, we'll change our ways if our consumers are mm-hmm. asking us for that. And they're just not, our, you know, consumers don't care and they don't want to pay more for, you know, better, more sustainable, you know, products that have been made in a way that doesn't exploit people or, you know, damage the environment. And we just felt like, all right, well, we're going to prove to you that actually your customers do care and people don't want to buy products that have been made off the back of exploitation or that degrade the environment. With an Instagram following of 165k and hubs in over 100 countries, this is exactly what they've done. During Fashion Revolution Week in April last year, 2 million people engaged with them by either downloading resources on their website or by posting on social media using their hashtags such as whomademyclothes. Before speaking to Sarah, I'd kind of made the assumption that consumer awareness was important because it can create more responsible shopping habits. I thought, that's how consumers can create change. It's that idea that you vote with your wallet. And Sarah told me that is part of it. But consumer engagement is important because it makes brands change. Fashion Revolution believes if consumers show they care and ask for change, then brands will listen and they'll be incentivized to change how they do things. One of the ways that they are going to do that is when they're kind of questioned or or pressured by their customers. Mm-hmm. And so that was one tactic that we thought would be, you know, pretty effective. You know, rather than boycotting or or I don't know, protesting in front of a store, you know, we we kind of knew some of us from working inside brands and retailers that they really care about customer feedback. So when you get consumers asking those difficult questions that maybe brands and retailers can't always immediately ask. They're kind of forced to hold up a mirror to their own practices and in order to, you know, if not 
immediately respond, you know, try and think of a way they're going to respond, especially if they keep getting more and more of those questions. So that's kind of what the who made my clothes question was about was, you know, getting people to demonstrate to brands that they want brands to be more transparent and Mm -hmm. they want to know about the provenance of the things that they wear, who's been making them under what conditions and how they've been made and what sort of impacts, you know, that process is having. I found this approach to change so interesting. On the one hand, the campaigning fashion revolution does is radical. I mean, they are calling for revolution. It's asking brands really hard questions and confronting issues, but it doesn't want to call out individuals and they don't advocate boycotting. So I was reading some of Fashion Revolution's mission statements and one thing I thought was really interesting was one of your statements is we do not advocate boycotting simply because we don't see it as an effective way to achieve systematic change. I feel like some people would say actually the way to get brands to listen is to boycott them and stop shopping. So I was wondering if you can kind of, yeah, unpack that a bit. I I think for a number of reasons that's kind of our stance. First of all, I think that's been a tactic that's been used for a long time and it's produced some great change amongst brands but it's not enough Mm -hmm. we wanted this to be more mainstream and bigger and also you know fashion is so globalized trying to organize a boycott of a major fashion brand that has 700 stores across the world and produces you know over a billion products and has millions and millions of consumers literally scattered around the world it's just like a practical thing Mm -hmm. being able to boycott a a massive brand like that that's so globalized i mean i'm just not sure how effective that could be Mm -hmm. yeah and then i think finally speaking to workers and who work in garment factories in places like cambodia or bangladesh or myanmar they don't actually want us to, to boycott. They need jobs. Mm-hmm. And they're proud of their work and what they do. They just want better jobs and better pay and their rights respected. And they want opportunities and they have dreams like everybody else. And boycotting a big brand who essentially gives their company orders who then employs them is not you know, the way to ensure that they have improved conditions. Mm-hmm. So it's kind, of, it's kind of all, for all those three things, we don't really advocate boycotting. I think it can work quite well if there's a really super specific issue. The Angora scandal, for yeah. example. I think with that that sort of thing, it works quite well. I guess but for so specific and yeah. easy to understand almost. Yeah. yeah. Or, you know, if it was like a specific factory or, mm-hmm. or something that, that could potentially work but fashion revolution is trying to deal with really ingrained systemic issues Mm -hmm. that we're trying to change and we just don't think that boycotting is the root one thing definitely that i really love about fashion revolution and i think probably why it's so popular actually is that there are a lot of people out there that love fashion yeah and that still want to consume clothes and still love that expression in getting dressed totally and Actually, it's quite nice because it finally offers somewhere where you can still have that and it doesn't doesn't have to necessarily conflict with you realising that the way brands are doing things isn't okay. And I feel like maybe campaigns before that was very much just like, don't don't shop, don't, a bit too one side and not allowing you. And it turns people off. Totally. So what's nice about, nice about Fashion Revolution is it's like, okay, yeah, we all have fashion. Who doesn't? And how can we maybe try and change it? So it's a system that we are proud to be part of. You hit the nail on the head. You know, we often call ourselves a pro-fashion protest. You know, when we, when Rana Plaza happened and the, and the bunch of us got together, we wanted to do something. And I think we looked at a bunch of the organizations that already existed and thought, you know, there's no, there's no organization out here that like really looks like us or speaks Mm -hmm. like we do, or I don't know, is like, is communicating a message that really compels us mm-hmm. so like how can we make something that does do those things for people like us who people who love you know have either worked in fashion as designers or stylists or mm-hmm. artisan communities um, and people just really we just all really love fashion yeah. we love design and we love visuals and we love social media and a lot of us are millennials and we just thought okay that's how we're gonna reach more people mm-hmm. is not by 
naming and shaming anyone. First of all, making everyone aware of what's going on and then making them feel empowered in whatever way that they can to help try and make a change. Mm -hmm. Sarah told me how brands and other stakeholders now get in contact with them. It's this non-judgmental approach that has allowed them access to more internal, sometimes tricky conversations. And it works both ways. Now brands are more comfortable around them, Sarah explained to me how they've opened up and shared with them some really interesting insights. We, we spoke to some big brands and said, you know, we're just like, okay, please be blunt with us. What can consumers do or say or think in order that would really like compel you guys to make changes internally? Like, yeah. And they said, you know, honestly, if we get like a hundred requests from our customers about a particular thing it could be anything you know well we take that really seriously and we'll take that to the executive level and talk about it we might even take it to the board and talk about it about what we're going to do about that about that thing that people keep asking for but they're like it matters the most if it's if if we know it's people who shop with us and who are our customers rather than like just a random person a petition for example they're like we don't even care if it's like 10,000 signatures none of Mm. those people are probably our customers yeah yeah it's like but if our customers who actually come to us and say you know we buy your products we love what you do but we want you to do better Mm -hmm. you know we're more inclined to actually um, put that request into action What I learned from Sarah is that these kinds of conversations that are behind the scenes and Fashion Revolution's experience in the fashion industry has really informed their approach and hopefully will accelerate a change to a fairer system for people and planet. All very groovy, but if brands are getting into it and opening up and consumers are into it and want change, then why aren't we seeing more of it? So I was at the um, Copenhagen Fashion Summit, uh, was, it, was it last week, a couple of weeks ago? And it was interesting hearing um, quite a few of the sort of small to medium enterprises were saying that they wanted to have more sustainable practices, but for them, um, it was like an investment and initial funding was kind of a barrier. And they were sort of saying that they needed, that's where they actually did need a policy and regulation to come in. Yeah. Because then it kind of levels the playing field and everyone, you know, they have to comply to that and so does everyone else and they're not going to lose money by doing it or whatever. Um, would you say, that, was that something that you agree with as well? That Yeah, completely, yeah. completely. It is it's much harder for smaller and, you know, medium-sized brands to, well, it's just harder to compete in the fashion market mm-hmm. in any sense. So, yeah, they they what's really needed there is investment from bigger companies from Mm -hmm. governments um and you're right regulation yeah or at least you know if they're not going to regulate then they can at least be investing in r&d that helps small and medium-sized businesses to access some of the you know incredible innovations that are happening in Mm -hmm. the space of sustainability and in fashion and and make that more possible but you're right absolutely they need a level playing field and the government has a crucial role in in helping that happen um and thinking obviously um fashion revolution is very political and i know and you mentioned actually earlier that you've been to the european parliament a few times i saw that you did something that last year where you were speaking just like so interesting so can you tell me more about what what some of the um yeah what you've done there what's kind of been the impact fashion revolutions had at the european parliament a couple of years ago, I can't remember exactly how long, I think maybe like three years ago now, the European Commission, after Rana Plaza happened, mm-hmm. the European Commission launched a garment initiative. Basically, the idea was that the European Commission should be taking more of an active role on ensuring that something like Rana Plaza never happens again mm-hmm. and looking at what its role and responsibility is in ensuring that we have more responsible Uh, garment supply chains uh, in Europe Mm -hmm. and the products that are you know imported to Europe maybe about a year and a half ago or so the European Parliament or at least some of the uh, MEPs in Parliament really wanted to make sure that these issues stayed on the agenda of Mm -hmm. the European Commission and so they commissioned their own report on the on the garment industry Mm -hmm. um, including a series of recommendations that the commission should commit to looking at in mm-hmm. future the areas where they could have uh, an impact in in really changing things for the better. So the how it works essentially is they they write this report and then the report has to be voted on and passed in parliament 
and that essentially commits the commission to looking at certain issues that are you know whatever is in the report basically the recommendations of the report and that's this is often the way that legislation kind of comes to be it often starts with a report you know where, some recommendations. Yeah, some recommendations. And then, you know, some years later, some of that might turn into, into law and, and mm, some of it might not. So when they came, the parliament came to vote on the report, they invited me to come and give evidence um, the day before the vote. And so that is what I did. And I went and spoke about fashion revolutions experience. Um, and basically, I was there to kind of represent what the consumers and especially what young people, Mm -hmm. you know, think about clothing and what kind of industry that they want to see and what they, what we, you know, what we all feel as young people who love fashion, um, what we want the industry to look like. They passed the report the next day, so that was really exciting. That's great. Talking to Sarah, we got an insight into how fashion revolution acts as a probe and a unified voice for consumers all over the world, translating their demands to policymakers and brands. But there's still a missing link in this conversation about change, the manufacturers and supply chains. To get an insight into this area, I spoke to Luke Smitham. Luke is a project manager at Impact, a consultancy whose sole aim is to improve the lives of workers and in doing so make more virtuous supply chains and stronger businesses. This maybe isn't the sexiest topic the drop will explore, but bear with us. Luke gave some surprising answers and a totally different take on responsibility. Before we kind of start diving in a bit deeper about whose responsibility it is to make change and all the different approaches to change, I think we should clarify what a supply chain is and the relationships that exist within them. Sure. So traditionally or historically, so if you look at Bourneville, that's a very traditional. Yeah. Cadbury's owned that town owned the factory, made the product, mm-hmm. imported the cocoa. Yeah. So that was probably the closest where you would get to a modern supply chain is the you'd import the raw product, but in your factory you would process it. Mm-hmm. Then probably around 20, 30 years ago, people started to sell off factories and started to outsource and create transactional relationships. So you would no longer own the factory which made your product. So if you look at a t-shirt, you have the cotton in the field which is then turned into the fabric, which is then turned into the t-shirt, which is then shipped to Europe. And each link forms part of that supply chain. But in the modern supply chain, you don't own any of those and you don't own any of the inputs. So you don't own the ships, you don't own the distribution warehouse once it reaches Europe. You don't own often the shop space. And in fact, sometimes your shops may be franchised out, so you don't own any of that. They're not your employees because they're often outsourced to agents, particularly in retail, or they're going through different ways. So modern supply chains, it's a very transactional relationship where you have contracts with potentially... To make an iPhone 6, there was over 600 suppliers who who had different inputs into the process from start to finish. Mm -hmm. That creates the chain. And sometimes they call it value chain. Supply chain, I think, is quite evocative because it is literally your supply that's coming to you. But it's... It's every link in that chain creates the chain in total. So, yeah, and that makes sense. So I feel like I went to a talk, when was it, maybe like a month ago, and it had the sustainability manager from H&M, mm-hmm. and we were talk- they were talking about factory issues. And after the talk, I asked her, I said, obviously, you, well, you have all these problems with controlling your factories, and the issues that go on there, you, you don't have a say in mm-hmm. them because you outsource. Why don't you just start owning your own factories? Then you'd have control and yeah. it would be okay. And she was just like, we are a retailer. That's not what we do. And that was kind of our answer. And I was thinking, that hasn't really answered my question. <laughs> but it does explain yeah. this, this, yeah, how there's all these links in the chain. And it's, you know, we're not a manufacturer. So basically, a lot of these issues stem from the fact that jobs have been outsourced and outsourced and outsourced and along with them, accountability and responsibility. Even Sarah told me that many brands didn't know if they were producing in Rana Plaza because of this complicated web of subcontracting. But it's not just those brands that were at Rana Plaza. Luke explained to me how most of these social and environmental issues we hear about in supply chains are pretty systemic, and most globalized brands and shoppers are implicit. 
But judging doesn't get the work done, and neither does waving a magic wand to try and fix things overnight. That's why consultancies like Impact that actually go in and talk to workers to understand their real needs and concerns before trying to fix things do good work. The thing with Impact is that often we do the things brands don't talk about. Okay. So there are other consultancies in London and elsewhere who will do the things brands want to talk about. Mm-hmm. It's very rare that brands will talk about the work we do because it's very embarrassing yeah. to actually talk about the real child labour, to actually talk about you know the fact that you tacitly accept extreme working hours, the fact that you turn a blind eye to certain issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, we tend to work in that sphere. And by not talking about it, you can actually get change done. So you don't communicate about it, you just get it done. It makes it easier to actually address the issues. Okay. Whereas if there's a view that by the end of it, you'll actually publicize it, you'll talk about your good work, it almost limits your ability to make real change because you're thinking of the narrative, what it will look like at the end. That's so there are other consultancies that focus very much on what is the story we're trying to get out of this, mm-hmm. whereas at Impact we focus very much on the human yeah. and we actually don't care about the story as long as the worker's life is improved at the end. So you have just a totally different starting point. Yeah, yeah. and we don't judge because we know it's happening everywhere to yeah. everyone. We just want to improve the lives of the worker, uh-huh. ultimately, and there's no straight shot to achieving that. Yeah. And if you do it a shortcut way to try and get the nice story, you mm-hmm. won't actually achieve what you're trying to do. It won't be systemic, it won't be sustainable. Yeah. So I've been talking about a lot for this episode about who needs to make change. Is it brands, policymakers, or consumers? But actually, there seems like there is a lot of policy and regulation that exists. Mm-hmm. So maybe actually the conversation should be a bit more around non-compliance. I think we need to create an environment where people can talk honestly. And it seems really silly, but I, I go to meetings and I facilitate meetings between brands and suppliers where you can actually just talk about your challenges yeah. and not be judged for it. And it doesn't have to be like a Catholic confessional, but it has to be a space <laughs> where a brand that admits it has a problem is not the one that gets shot down. Mm-hmm. Apple is a famous example. Apple are not perfect in many ways, but nor are Samsung or Huawei or a million other electronics brands. But they actually admitted they had a problem, yeah. which was child labour, which is... is that's what Rose is talking about. Oh, it's from that article, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Um, they actually admitted they had a massive problem with child labour. And it wasn't malicious child labour. It was often... When you have a factory of 10,000, 15,000 people, people will get into the factory on fake IDs. Even on real IDs, they won't have the checks in place, particularly in peak periods. Mm-hmm. And they actually made a massive attempt to boost age verification processes, try to avoid it happening, remediate every child that was found. Very seriously remediate them, so put money into the pot so the children go back to school, back to education. And they still get shot down for it. Yeah. I was reading um, a forum fairly recently where someone was talking about Apple's child labour policy and the consumer was totally critiquing it. It was a general internet forum saying, oh, well, obviously they have this, they don't admit the truth. It's like, well, at least they have it. If you're able to talk about it openly without being shot down, that would make it so much easier. Yeah. It's not about passing blame, I think. It's about talking openly about the challenges that we all face. So when I facilitate, I facilitated a meeting recently between brands and suppliers. Initially, I just got everyone to list the challenges they have. Mm -hmm. Not with compliance, but just their day-to-day challenges. The brand people could say, well, I've got a director who doesn't give me any budget. I get, you know, 200 emails a day. However insignificant it may seem, you can actually humanise people in that way. Then the suppliers are saying, well, you're telling me to do this. This other brand's telling me to do this. I don't know what to do. I've been doing this for 20 years. It seems to work. And now you want me to change everything. And then once you get that out in the air, then you can start to think of solutions. Yeah, completely. The thing about solutions is that they require everyone to be on board. So even though Luke's expertise and focus is on change in supply chains, he still returns to the role of the consumer and the challenges of implementing change. Your consumer still wants the product. Yeah. I mean, that's the, the total hypocrisy, I think, often of the consumers. You still want the product. Yeah. But you're willing, on the other hand, to say that Android or Google phone is better than Apple. Yeah. <laughs> like, it doesn't really matter, ultimately. You have to make a decision at one point. And then the other challenge for me is people who work in brands sometimes don't want themselves to face the fact that their brand does bad things. But within brands, sometimes you do get this effect of, I'm judging you for doing this, so I'm judging you, supplier, for working long hours. But when I yell at you to cut costs, that's totally different. Yeah, exactly. Or when I'm changing the lead time. Yeah, that's the business. To a shorter lead time, 
Yeah. That's just the way it is. That's nothing to do with me. And then yeah. your supplier says, well, this is just China. This is just the way it is. And that's like, no, that's wrong. So, yeah, it sounds like you really have to open everyone up to these conversations and make it lesser confrontation between people and more this dialogue or working together. Yeah, and working fundamentally for workers themselves. If I have to hear anyone else ever say, oh, the workers don't want this, mm-hmm. when they've never actually spoken to a worker. Yeah. As Luke spoke about this unawareness that contributes to so many problems in the supply chain, he related it to his own experience of work and this constant race to the bottom in the fashion industry. I think brands sometimes forget that a lot of the problems, it's a ripple effect, stem from them. And brands, my clients do it to me sometimes, so they'll, I'll send a budget for a, you know, Project X, and immediately the first email is, you have to cut your costs. Or explain to me your costs. Yeah. And it's like, well, you're doing it to me, I know you do this to your factory. Yeah, yeah, completely. <laughs> you're treating me the same way because I'm a supplier. Yeah. And you're not even noticing it when you do it. Mm-hmm. So there's also a self-awareness piece of are the decisions I'm making having that effect, which yeah. ultimately is the worker that gets, you know, at the end of it. Yeah, and I think I can imagine that because everyone's in there every day thinking, well, I'm just trying to do my job. I'm just being good at my job and not really thinking about the other person inside of that conversation, I guess. Yeah, and it, it, come, it comes from the vision of what your company is trying to achieve. So what is the vision of your company? Is it, are you just a clothing company or are you a garment company that wants to change the world and make it a better place? Mm-hmm. Do you want to provide good jobs? Do you just want to provide jobs? But it also comes with how you cascade that vision to each person. Yeah. So it should be totally unacceptable that your commercial team are not linked to responsible sourcing. Yeah. Your vision should cross across every team that responsible sourcing is everyone's job in a very fundamental way. So when you talk to a supplier, you don't just talk about cost. You try and understand the process. Yeah. And you see it in, in totally different examples in product developments. Yeah. Sometimes you meet people who develop products who've never been in a factory or who've never seen it be made, don't understand how a product is made. And then you meet very inspiring people who, for every product they make, go to every factory to actually see it being made. And to understand that dialogue, I guess. Yeah. So they, can, they know that they can do a better job. Yeah, and to, to understand really how it, how it works, who's impacted if I change my decision. Mm-hmm. Um, but often everyone sees themselves as this island where their actions don't have that, or I've just been told to do this, when actually... Every decision you make has a consequence, unintended or not. Yeah. I think that even if you make the wrong decision, you at least have to make the decision. Yeah. And it goes down to very basic things. So under Modern Slavery Act, for example, own operations are tied into the act, which means anything that happens within your own operations needs to have the same amount of scrutiny as your supply chain. So fundamentally, if you read it in the way I would read it, the tables you buy, the laptops you buy in your head office... You have to have made the decision. Whether it's cost-related, whether it's ethical-related, you at least have to have thought about it. Mm-hmm. So you may choose 500 Dell laptops because it was 20% cheaper, but you at least have to have decided that. You may choose a cleaning company because it's cheaper, but then that cleaning company, you have to accept there may be slaves there. But you at least have to make the decision and think about it. Yeah. And if each person thinks about that and has that conversation, you can create better companies and better... Yeah. So when your commercial person goes to a factory, you can say to them... Can you just check when you're there, kind of the nationality of the workers? Because even that small piece of information can... Help maybe potentially identify if yeah. it's Yeah. So if it's a bunch of, you know, North Koreans in northeast China, you know you're in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, so, but it, it happens that, you know, buyers, designers will go to factories, they'll get the tour. They won't notice anyone there. They'll notice the machines, they'll notice the product. Mm, they won't see the workers. You don't have to be aggressive. It's about chit-chat. It's about yeah, yeah. building relationships. It's about talking to managers, suppliers. And then it should also be a point of pride for factories to say, if someone says to you, where did you recruit your workers? They yeah. should say, oh, I get them through this certified agency where I pay this amount, which indicates that they must be paid minimum wage, where I know which country they come from. It should be about proving how good you are, not this race to the bottom, which is much easier. When I first started this episode, I wanted to explore whose responsibility it is to create change. But what I gained from Luke was this idea that we should be putting honest and open conversations above deciding exactly who's to blame and where responsibility lies. Maybe we shouldn't be talking about responsibility because that's where it's gone wrong. Mm-hmm. Everyone trying to figure out who's responsible for this and actually let's not talk about responsibility. 
let's just talk about the problems yes. almost to kind of fix the problems that way. So yeah. That may be a... I think on a, on a macro level, so if I was looking from a brand perspective, I fundamentally think within your supply chain, if there is a child or if there is forced labor or if there is a lesser compliance issue, I think fundamentally it's the responsibility of the brand to accept that that's part of their management system. Yeah. Whether it's first tier or fifth tier. Yeah. I think it's a management system issue that you should know about it and you should make the decision, like I said, to either ignore it or fix it, but you mm-hmm. at least have to make the decision. You can't just say it's not my responsibility. Yeah. I think on a when you're looking at a problem by problem basis, there's classification versus intent. So passport retention is classified as wrong. It shouldn't happen fundamentally. So what happens a lot with passport retention is the the workers want their passports safe. That's what managers will tell you. That's what brands will say. So okay. So now we can at least have a conversation. So why does it have to be in the HR person's office locked up? Why can't they have their own lockers with their own keys? Then often that will be enough. Then then that may raise the next question of, oh, we don't trust them. See, then then you've got a, a slightly different intent to address. But at least you're getting to the crux of it. We've worked out the passport retention is wrong. Now we just at least need to get the bottom of the solution. Ultimately, Luke broke down the ways he goes about creating change in labour issues. And surprise, surprise, it's not as simple as saying, that's wrong, don't do that. The insight I really gained from Luke is that these issues can be a grey area, which is why dialogue with all parties is so important to navigate them. He summed up this approach best when I asked if different business models were the way forward. I think it's more about changing the relationship of partnerships within mm-hmm the way capitalism and globalization works yeah. more than it is changing the business model because yeah. it does work it fundamentally means that we can live in comfort that not only we can live in comfort but if you talk to rosie she'll say 20 years ago in bangladesh people in their little houses didn't have tvs they didn't have you know a mattress and now they do and it's probably stagnated and it may have gotten worse but those things were only achieved through trade and trade capitalism, capitalism. Also accepting that sometimes it's what we do is unfair. And we, particularly in the West, is we do still exploit cheap labour abroad. And it is unfair. So maybe we should pay more for certain of our products. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should accept that everything should cost 10% more. So there's that decision that has to be made at some point. But yeah. it is about thinking about what what are we doing that's unfair. And mm-hmm. it's not the Donald Trump, oh, it's unfair, me, me kind of argument. It's more... Is it unfair that we're pulling all these resources from these countries and not giving anything back? Yeah. And you can you can use business to give back in interesting ways, but you yeah. can't just keep extracting. Then then turning around and complaining that people want to move to the UK, which is more the kind of further right UKIP type position. Mm-hmm. If you can't just keep extracting stuff and then expecting it to not have a reciprocal effect eventually. Yeah, yeah, that's so interesting. So I think it's just about making more, not fair trade, but more fair conditions for trade to work. Yeah. Less transactional, more about partnerships, more about building up local business. So many of the changes that Luke spoke about came down to trying to turn around this massive system that's basically been exploiting things for so long. But if we want to operate in some form of capitalism still, are there ways brands and businesses can do things differently from the beginning? We spoke to Tom Kay, the founder of Finisterre, a British apparel surfing brand that views capital differently, putting people and planet at the core of its decision-making and outlook. So Finisterre really started uh, in 2003 from my bedroom here in Snagness because um, I'd been in and around the sea my whole life. I was a cold water surfer. Um, over here where some of the best sort of waves there are anywhere in the world there's sort of certain sort of romance and so I sort of wanted to build product as well need for and the brand is also going to build product which had a very sort of address the sustainability agenda mm-hmm. so would you say then that your kind of the way you do things differently is mainly in how you make your products it's an outlook really I think yeah. it's an outlook so our business outlook is you know as I sort of said it's committed to people and environment products yeah. um, and we like as a brand we consider ourselves we like to challenge what's gone before and you know don't just take things mm-hmm. as for granted uh, and so you have that outlook as why the business started our outlook how we design products and what that then becomes every time yeah. you come to a problem or something you think needs addressing you have a sort of a way of working that allows you to deal with that 
Tom brought this outlook to life through Finisterre's use of Beaumont Wall, a project that resurrects an entire British supply chain. We source a lot of our wool from Merino from New Zealand and Australia. Yeah. So it's a long way to come. Uh, and so we started, you know, there's, you see sheep everywhere in the UK, so we mm-hmm. thought we, there must be an answer where we could get our, our wool sourced more locally. Yeah. And so that was the kind of outlook again. So our outlook as a business led us to sort of challenge, challenge the kind yeah. of th- conventional thinking and sort of led us to a rare breed specialist called Leslie Pryor, who has a um, farm on Exmoor. And she had collected uh, the only 26 Beaumont sheep in the country to her farm. Mm-hmm. And the Beaumont sheep uh, is a British merino, basically. And yeah. so it's got a very fine fibre wool. It can be wet, it can be worn next to the skin. Yeah, it's not and itchy. And that, that's the, that's the important, that's, that's the key with merino and mm-hmm. these sort of, these sort of fine, super fine fibre fabrics. So we started working with her and 26 sheep is obviously not enough sheep to make much product with. Mm-hmm. But for the first three or four years, um, she did. She sort of bred the sheep mm-hmm. and increased the flock size, and we sheared and stored the wool. And after we got to a certain amounts of tonnage of wool that we'd stored, we were able to make our first Beaumont jumpers. After sort of four years of collecting wool, how much could you make? Uh, probably about three hundred jumpers. Really? Okay, so great. So it's, it's not it's not tons, but it's yeah. not, it's not lots. But it's, it, that's a good amount, and they all they all sell out. Thinking about taking ownership, brands usually start within their supply chains which is what Finisterre did with their Beaumont wool collection. But most brands don't want to talk about the whole life cycle of a garment. This is an issue Finisterre took on in their Wetsuits from Wetsuits recycling programme. Can you tell me a bit more about um, that programme? Yes, yeah, yeah, so the Wetsuits from Wetsuits programme is, is really exciting on many levels, but um, it's really trying to introduce circular manufacturing or consumption, purchasing, whatever you want to call it, into the uh, wetsuit industry. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, we, we, we wear wetsuits. It's, neoprene's a really dirty product, fabric, to, or material to work with. And Is that because it's, um, it's made from, from oil, petrol, chemicals? Yeah, it's all yeah. chemicals. It's, you know, it's quite, and it's also, very once you've made it, it's very hard to do anything with at the mm-hmm. end of its life. The purchase frequency of wetsuits is quite a lot. Yeah. Uh, and so there's a massive problem in terms of piles of wetsuits just ending up in landfill. I think our rough calculation was 380 tonnes of nipper in a year, potentially wow. in landfill. No one's really been thinking about it in the industry at all, and it's yeah. sort of something that people are aware of, uh, but do nothing about. Let's um, let's work out how we can do something about it. So we made a full-time position here for a full-time wetsuit recycler. Yeah. I, I sort of came to the problem, I was like, right, let's make a position available for wetsuit recycler. Let's link up with the university, X University, mm-hmm. where there's a, a knowledge transfer partnership where we work Jenny is a wetsuit recycler. She works two days a week out there and is mentored by a leading professor in this field of sort yeah. of material engineering mm-hmm. uh, to work out how if we can do this. And yeah. the exciting thing is actually it is so pioneering that we don't actually know. I don't actually know where it's going to go. Yeah, it may take us two years, make us five years, make us I don't know how long it take. But it's again, it's a it's a commitment to do something about a problem uh, based on using innovation filling the gaps in the business with sort of scientific expertise with the university yeah. uh, and um, using innovation to sort of like to lead, lead, lead that charge. It was really inspiring to hear how a brand can work with academics and scientists to tackle big problems with collaboration. But I did wonder if this came at a cost and if this approach is accessible to any size brand. So this was part of the Knowledge Transfer Network? Yeah, partnership, yeah. Yeah, so I know that's something that's run by right. Innovate UK. Innovate UK, yeah. So with things like that, do they provide the funding? Total program is two years, mm-hmm. uh, and that is a figure of X, and then we have to commit thirty percent of it. So, you, and the seventy percent or sixty-five percent is committed by um, Innovate UK through yeah. government sort of body. So it's pretty good. You have to kind of commit an amount to it. Yeah, so it is still potentially a bit of a sacrifice. You've chosen. We're going to put some money. It's not in a this. sacrifice because you're, you know, you're that implies kind of you're giving something away and not getting anything back. Yeah, it's more of a commitment. Yeah. to our belief in that something we sh- we should get, you know, we should do something about this. So there is some government funding out there to help brands and businesses implement sustainable innovations, but it's still a financial investment. Later in our conversation about products, microplastics came up. I couldn't sit five minutes from the beach and interview a lifelong surfer without discussing ocean plastics. I'd wonder actually how many people really realise that don't work with clothing 
that a lot of the microplastic shedding comes from when you wash clothes. I think people have an idea that it comes from litter that's been broken mm. down and down and down and down. Yeah. And actually, it's a lot of our man-made fibres that yeah. are shedding when we wash them. I mean, I kind of feel like it should be something that obviously brands work on and yeah. think about how can we engineer our textiles mm. so this isn't such a problem. Yeah. But I also feel like there should be legislation that has washing machine makers totally, putting yeah. in filters into yeah. their washing machines. Yeah. All these problems, there's the kind of the downstream sort of sticking plaster, mm-hmm. which is like, you know, like a filter or whatever it goes over the washing machine effluent yeah. you know, thing, whatever it goes out. And there's the upstream, you know, designing for this not to happen in the first place. Yeah. It could be easy fix, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if that's maybe where thinking about who can make a who's better positioned to make change is it kind of governments and legislation or brands and businesses i feel like this is kind of one example where actually it should come from higher but then a brand being very visible and being Mm. about a lifestyle can potentially make people aware of these things that they then demand it i do feel like sometimes private sector leads the way a bit yeah i think it's the, the collaborative sort of power of scientists activists environmentalists and brands can you know it's a good good force to you know to lobby government and make yeah. change happen and you know i think what the stuff that surf against sewage have been doing you know tom is quite hard to hear here he's talking about the charity surfers against sewage with the you know, return, bottle return scheme in scotland and you know they've really have started to do that now because the watermark on this issue is kind of you know a fever pitch everyone knows about it pretty yeah. much uh government so you know it sounds it seems like on the face of it they're doing something about it which is great yeah which is really good mm. tom pointed out how the visibility of brands teaming up with activists or scientists can mobilize change faster than the bureaucracies of government this idea also came up with sarah that governments do need to create new policies but that momentum can be lost when bigger issues make the news and switch up the agenda it makes sense then that some businesses are looking for other ways to affect change trying to account for people and planet in their businesses. Finisterre has taken this on through becoming a B Corp, a globally recognised certification for businesses that meet higher standards of transparency, accountability and social and environmental performance. What does that actually mean? Because I know it's like a a certification you get Mm -hmm. assessed, but am I right in thinking it means you're like legally obliged to behave in a certain way? How does that all work? Explain to me a bit more. So, start at the beginning. So, B Corp is... um, yeah, if they're is using business for force for good, mm-hmm. basically, and that's how you know that's how they sort of do one line, I suppose. Yeah, because actually we probably should say it's it stands for benefit corporation, yeah, doesn't benefit it? Corporation. Yeah, benefit corporation. The B Corps are um, using force business for force for good, uh, and the whole idea is sort of you know in it's kind of shoot for stars sort of view is you should repurpose capital yeah um and capital you know has been sort of distributed around the world in the wrong way in the business that existed to exist very much in their own bubble and all they're there to do is make a profit and mm-hmm. that's it with to the disregard of their people their cultures their environment their suppliers their workers everybody yeah. the whole sort of thing and as long as business makes a profit who cares what happens to us? There's very many, many examples of that happening, and there's many examples of where, you know, the environment or uh, people who take advantage of because of that. So, B Corp is sort of a new type of business. It's quite rigorous actually. You go yeah. through uh, a, a, a sort of online questionnaire that covers all areas of your business, you know, operations, product, uh, suppliers, workers, community, the whole sort of thing basically, mm-hmm. environment. Um, and then you get a, you kind of get an original assessment score, and then you have a, quite an in-depth interview. Yeah. And you provide a lot more documentation to the uh, certifiers at B Corps and then if you get a score above 80 you become B Corps certified oh wow okay uh, and you certify every two years um, and you have to as part well you don't have to but for me what was the attractive thing about it was that uh, as part of your we're limited company and mm-hmm. as part of your limited company you have articles of association you sort of say yeah. why you exist as a business and they say right yeah. we as directors have responsibility to this blah 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 all this sort of stuff um, and originally it just says you know we as a business exist to do these things yeah, yeah. and we as directors have a legal responsibility to make sure we maximise stakeholder value return sort of thing yes. full stop and now we have inserted um, through our B Corps certification process uh, I think it's sort of five or six clauses now uh, that say we as directors have responsibility towards our environment, uh, our communities, our people, our culture. It kind of goes through down the list wow. of that. So, actually, if for some reason I, as a director, was like, do you know what? 
we're not gonna we're gonna go and do something totally off piece for the brand uh, I could actually be sued for negligence because you're not upholding one of your commitments to the in, environment in, or whatever no, no, yeah because I'm not yes yeah, so I did something really you know just totally against what we would do yeah um, just and but you know and say we started doing that I could actually get sued for negligence wow. because I'm, I'm going against what I've certainly been doing like the Articles Association amazing okay. so it's kind of that's it's really it's a really serious commitment I suppose yeah. so um, yeah so it's, and it's and for me I suppose it's an affirmation of the last 15 years and also at the same time giving us more to work towards the future Tom was really honest and open with us. He wasn't afraid to say, look, we're not quite perfect. But the brand's outlook, challenging how business operates in relation to people and the environment, was really evident. Its long-term view, commitment in this area, and investment in collaboration and research really does set it apart from other large apparel brands. I knew I wasn't going to get a needle answer to this question, but I didn't expect to find my view on so many of the supply chain issues become more subjective. And by that, I'm not saying that I suddenly think in some circumstances, child labour or polluting water systems is okay. But these issues are so systemic, change is not going to happen overnight. It really is going to take everyone being more mindful and thinking about cause and effect, working out how to make sure the commercial imperative or getting your job done doesn't undermine that awareness. We need to transition to a place where this is just embedded in everything we do. It's definitely up to brands and businesses to self-regulate and for policy to make stricter regulations, understanding the real reasons behind any non-compliance. But consumers have power too, not just because they're voters that politicians are trying to please or because they can vote with their wallet and they're a market that brands are trying to sell to, but because they are citizens. They're the people that work in all these different roles. It's the attitudes, mindsets and cultures that citizens foster that define their society. Ultimately, we do have the power to create the world we want to live in and a collective future that's worth sustaining. The Drop is produced by myself, Pippa Smart, as well as Amy Foster-Taylor, Bronwyn Sire and Claire Weiss. We would like to thank our guests from this episode, Sarah Ditty, Luke Smitham and Tom Kay. Our theme music is produced by Troy Hewson.